That's Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so our topic for today is on the issue of suffering. Uh, maybe you might say more specifically, Christian suffering. See, throughout history, I think Christians, um, historically speaking, have been the most persecuted group of individuals, even today, in many countries, like countries like Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea. Uh, there's a website called Open Doors, which tracks the persecuted Christians wide. Uh, so Christians suffer. 
and perhaps for some of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus, uh, you might say that, yeah, in, in this country, we are unlikely to suffer such intense physical persecution. But that's not to say that we don't suffer at all. I've been around enough people to know that even though things look really smooth, calm and steady on the surface, often underneath, there are really deep struggles going on, some that cause real heartache and pain. Christians, well, Christians suffer. And maybe that's you. Maybe you might be going through some form of deep suffering. And if that's the case, I'm sorry. And the reality, the reality is that I, I don't really know what situations that each of you are in. Some of you come from very different backgrounds and understandings. And there may very well be questions left unanswered after this really short talk. Uh, but my hope and my prayer is that perhaps this will help you to make sense and make some progress in making sense of your suffering. And maybe that might help. Or maybe you might be someone who is looking into the Christian faith or wouldn't call yourself a Christian and perhaps might be going through suffering at this very moment. Uh, it's worth pointing out that uh, for the next sort of 15, 20 minutes or so, uh, what we are going to be looking at is quite specific to Christian suffering. But I want to welcome you to sort of think through from your point of view, from your worldview, how does uh, Christians make sense of suffering and how that resonates with how you make sense of suffering in this world. And so do come to chat to me if you have questions after this talk. So how do we make sense of suffering? And I think for such a topic, I think what we want are real answers. You know, there's nothing worse than the, the trite answer in the midst of deep pain. You know, everything will be okay. Uh, there's always a better plan. And here's my favorite. Let go and let God. I mean, what does that even mean? Uh, let go of what? Let God do what? So we want not trite, but real answers. So how do we make sense of suffering? Uh, perhaps if you call yourself Christian. Uh, should Christians suffer at all? Uh, why do we suffer? Is God angry at me? Uh, why me? And the reason why our author has been addressing this issue of suffering is because it's intimately linked to the topic of endurance. Well, if you've been coming with us for the past uh, couple of months, you know that we've been looking through the book of Hebrews. And this final stage in this letter, it's all about the issue of endurance how um, some of us here were 10, 20, 30 years would still be standing as Christians to the end. And suffering is the main reason, I think, when Christians, they, they fall away. Uh, when life is hard, and it's easy to, to seek a way to ease the pain. And so the readers of Hebrews, they were facing persecution or about to face significant persecution. And so this section becomes an occasion for them to, to reflect, to think how to make sense of their suffering uh, so that they would endure and so that you would endure. So how do we make sense of suffering? Well, the first thing that God wants to say to you today is, you are my child, you are my son, and you are my daughter. I look at verse five in our passage today. Look at verse five. Have you forgotten the exhortation that he addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Uh, the big point that the author wants you to understand that if you put your trust in Jesus, you are God's son and God's daughter. 
But before we go in further in that, it's worth pausing to consider the point here. Um, it's, it's quite an amazing thought um, that the author thinks that you are nothing less than sons and daughters of the creator God. Uh, the God who is holy is your father. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we've been given an insight, a mysterious insight in the conversation between the eternal God and the eternal son. Uh, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, come, sit at my right hand. That's what the father says to the son. Father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Behold, I have come to do your will. That's what the son says to the father. But you see in our passage today, uh, for the first time, uh, for the first time, he was welcome. Do you want to come in? Come on in. Uh, for the first time in Hebrews, um, it's for the first time we are invited into this conversation between an eternal God and an eternal son. Uh, my son, God says in this passage in Hebrews, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And it's an amazing thought because if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're invited into a conversation, a conversation between the eternal father and the eternal son. But here's the big implication. Uh, we are at Hebrews chapter 5, if you want to follow on in this passage today. Uh, the big implication is that your suffering that you're experiencing, well, it's your father's loving discipline. Uh, look at verse 6 of our passage today, Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the fathers of spirit, father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as he best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, our author here, he draws on the illustration of experience with our earthly fathers to make his point. And I recognize here there'll be different experiences with uh, relationships with your father. I think the author here is speaking generally that typically there's a res respect for our fathers who they discipline us for our good. Uh, some of you would, I mean, most of you know, a week, ago, a week or so ago was, was Father's Day. And my dad, he sent us a text in our family chat group. And he was reflecting on one of the important principles that he had when he was raising us up. And it was the, the, the principle of discipline. And he was right. Uh, there was an occasion when I was really young. I got really angry with my sisters uh, and, I, and I punched them. And you must understand, see, I'm the youngest in my family. I have two older sisters. And being the youngest, I needed to fight for my own interests. And as a result, uh, can you guess what happened? Um, I got a smack on my bottom for hurting my sisters. I know whether physical punishment is sort of debatable, uh, but that's not the point. Uh, but for me, it was a really good form of measured discipline from my father. Because once you physically hurt others, you can expect punishment. And it's like verse 11, you see, in that moment, the discipline was, was painful. 
my bum was was hurting when I when it got spanked. Uh, but later, it yielded the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Whenever I, I thought of hurting my sisters again, I, I knew what was coming, and that promoted peace, uh, peace in the family. And that's a thought. What loving father would let his son go unpunished when he goes around hurting others? See, that was loving discipline from my father. What is more, loving discipline from a heavenly father? How exactly uh, does God discipline his children? Well, it's not explicit. There's a whole variety of ways. It could be the struggle of sin. It could be persecution by others. It could be sickness and illness, suffering in this fallen world. And how that happens is not clear. But why it happens, that's very clear. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Why does it happen? He disciplines the one he loves. Verse 7, he is treating you as sons. Verse 8, it legitimizes you as his child. And verse 10, he does it for our good. Not too harsh, not beyond what we can bear, just the right amount that we can share in his holiness. So if you call yourself a Christian today, how do you make sense of suffering? Well, you are a child of God. Your suffering is your heavenly father, loving discipline. Verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. I think if you really grasp this, this is actually really helpful. Uh, It's a terrible theology to think that whenever you're suffering as a Christian, God is angry at you. Uh, We think that he's distant, or we need to appease him. We need to make him happy so that he stops the suffering. See, that is soul-destroying, and it couldn't be further from the truth. It is in your suffering that he is shaping you lovingly, not more than you can bear, in order for you to share in his holiness. It's also important to see that this is not trite. Maybe there's a thought at the back of your head. You might say, hey, that's a really convenient way to explain away suffering. When things go well, praise God. When things go bad, oh, it's all somehow part of his plan. I mean, is this just a trite way to explain away suffering? Well, no. I mean, firstly, this is consistent to how God treats his children across history. Uh, The quotation there in verse 5, it comes from Proverbs chapter 3, where King Solomon, well, he reminds his son that the Lord disciplines. That's how God relates to the nation of Israel in the past. But more significantly, this is how God relates to Jesus, his son. You think about the historical person of Jesus, the fleshly experience of temptation that he felt, the shame that he felt, the blood that he felt was part of his father's love for him and also for us. And so it was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so it's only tried if the historical person of Jesus didn't happen, and we are expected to suffer when his son didn't. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you share the same path as your brother, the path of suffering before glory. And so, if, again, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus today and you experience some form of suffering, understand that your suffering experience is, is unique. You see, all suffering can make one stronger. It's a tourism in this world, and that's true. But it's only Christian suffering that makes one more like the person of Jesus, more like uh, the family likeness. 
And so in moments of deep suffering, uh, Jesus, he's near because he's a human and he can sympathize. Uh, your father is near in love, disciplining the one he loves. Uh, you are God's son and you are God's daughter. Well, but much we do as a result of hearing this word. I want to see the logic connection here. If you are considered a child of God, what logically happens next is that you stand to gain an inheritance. If you're a child, you stand to gain an inheritance. So the next call that our author goes is a reminder, it's an encouragement not to throw away, not to throw away your inheritance. Uh, he continues to use this, the theme of sonship using the story of Esau and Jacob. Isaac's son, look at verse 15 in our passage, chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Uh, simply put, he is a bad example of a son who traded away his whole inheritance for a bowl of dental soup, a bit like what you're having for lunch now. That's all because he was hungry and he wants an instant relief from his suffering. Instant relief, instant gratification to avoid suffering. I'm all for the fleeting pleasures of sin. I'm Esau, he traded away his inheritance. But what exactly is his inheritance? Um, that he gave away, or his birthright, um, in, in verse 16. And over the past weeks, if you remember, we've been developing this idea of what the inheritance is, or the reward. And we saw that this is a promise of a future city, a promise of life in that future city, the new creation. I look at verse 22, where the author explains, that you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festo gathering. See, the inheritance, as explained by author, is a heavenly city. It's a physical city, mind you, a physical one, but not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. A kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that lasts forever. But there's more, he goes on to say a bit more. Uh, the inheritance is not just a place, but also it includes people. I look at verse 23, uh, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. It's a place where all of God's people and children are gathered in the heavenly banquet. His family gathered together a kingdom with people. But there's even more, uh, the climax of the inheritance, the high point. I look to verse 23. It is to God, who is the judge of all, in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see what the, the author is saying? Uh, the inheritance is, yes, it's entry into everlasting kingdom. It's a reunion with the saints, but the pinnacle is coming face to face with God. It's coming face to face with God and his son, the high priest who is seated at his right hand. 
is coming face to face with the one who created you, the one who experienced your pain, the one who laid down his life for you, and the one who intercedes on your behalf. That is the climax of the inheritance, the reunion with the God of the universe. Some of you might be familiar that when often people quote from the book of Revelation, um, one of the favorite verses is from the end of Revelation, chapter 21, about heavenly Jerusalem, where your tears are wiped away, where death is no more, where there's no more mourning, no pain, no crying anymore. That's true. But the climax in the book of Revelation is not chapter 21, but chapter 22. Uh, Because what happens in chapter 22 is that the saints will finally see with our eyes the face of God. Uh, We will meet God face to face. Uh, We will see him face to face. That is the climax of the inheritance. God and his son. So don't throw away your inheritance for a bowl of lentil soup, for a bowl of earthly comfort, or a bowl of forbidden relationships. The inheritance, it is meeting the creator God face to face. And where our altar he finally lands is most profound. Uh, it's a call to be grateful and to worship. Uh, look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's very striking what he's saying. The way to deal with suffering is to be grateful. Think about that. The way to deal with suffering is to be grateful. Or the way to be dealing with suffering is to, is to worship. You see, you're not grateful for the suffering but grateful for the suffering that proves that you are sons and daughters with God. Uh, you share in the likeness of his son and that guarantees your future inheritance or worship. So not to ignore the suffering, but to recognize that the suffering identifies us with those who've been brought near to God. And it's a really subversive point. You know, when you're going through suffering, it's, it's a tendency to be bitter, to be angry, But instead, the author, he calls for the opposite, to be grateful, to worship. And it's because suffering, it identifies you with the person of Jesus, the suffering brother. You join him in the road to Calvary. You take up your cross and you follow him. You share in the family likeness so you can look forward to the future inheritance. Um, Here is a quote by the U.S. pastor, Tim Keller. He says, suffering is the very heart of the Christian faith. It is not only the way Christ become like and redeem us, but it's one of the main ways we become like him and experience his redemption. And that means that our suffering, despite its painfulness, is also filled with purpose and usefulness. There's purpose in the suffering of the Christian. See, it's a solution that no other worldview can offer. See, in a secular worldview, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life. It's only seen as an interruption. And other worldviews, it leads us to sit in the midst of joy and to see the coming sorrows. But Christianity, what does it do? It empowers an individual to sit in the midst of suffering, but to taste the coming joy. You see, it's a profound answer that other worldviews cannot provide. 
so this is how, um, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus today, uh, you can make sense of your suffering. Uh, perhaps you might be experiencing deep suffering today. And the truth is, I don't think uh, this short talk would really change um, and alleviate the pain. Uh, but my prayer for you today is that you hear his voice, uh, knowing that his words are a comfort and a reminder for you to process the suffering and experience that you're going through. That he's not distant, but he's ex- exercising his living discipline. That is in your suffering, it helps you to identify with your suffering brother, and that gives you certainty of your future inheritance. And perhaps that might shift your perspective a little, away from yourself, to be grateful to God. Don't refuse him who's speaking. A verse as we close. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. Why don't I pray?